open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be reading the entire chapter this morning. Saved by grace. What a wonderful message from the book of Ephesians. And the word of God for us this morning says this. I'm reading the New American Standard Version. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the, to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what was in this administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose with which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. Paul's in prison when he writes this. On your behalf, for they are for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, which surpasses all understanding, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forevermore. There's the title of our message this morning. To him be glory in the church. Glory in the church. What does it mean to say that we have glory in the church? Well, let me start by trying to give you a really what turns out to be a negative example. It is the church of the Holy Sepulchre, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is in Jerusalem. It is one of the oldest church buildings in the world. It's not the oldest ever discovered, but it's one of the oldest church locations in the world. The facade that you're looking at right there has been added within a couple of centuries of us. The site was first used as a church in 336 A.D., Empress Helena, Constantine's mother, went to Jerusalem on a mission to find holy sites after Constantine had supposedly become a Christian. And she was looking for the site of Golgotha, of Calvary. Where was it that Jesus was crucified? And apparently the site where the church of the Holy Sepulchre is at 
purports to claim to hold both the site of Golgotha, the the outcropping where Jesus was crucified, along with the tomb where he was laid. Now, we don't know if this was actually the spot. It's possible, but frankly, Jerusalem has changed hands so many times, even by the time Empress Helena had gotten there and the Romans had knocked it flat a couple of times. We're not really sure where Jesus was crucified. The point is, this church building, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is is a good a place as any for the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it holds a special place in the heart of Christians. And when we think about a place that's meant to memorialize and to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the greatest news the world has ever heard, it is discouraging to learn about the degree to which Christians have behaved quite badly in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, several Christian groups share the uh, ownership of the building. You have Armenian Christians and Roman Christians and Greek Orthodox and some Coptic groups. And they all have particular areas of this church that, which are dedicated to them. But they fight so much among each other. True story. A Muslim family owns the keys to the church. Because the only way they could keep these Christians from fighting with each other was to give the keys to a Muslim. That's true. Well, in 2008, in November 2008, a fight actually broke out between some of the monks there. They're in there supposedly worshiping the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord. And monks from two different groups got into a fight. I mean, there's video of it. It's gone viral. These guys are throwing punches and kicking. It looks like a WWE Raw match going down right there in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Israeli police had to come in and break them up. In 2002, a fight broke out up on the roof because one monk from one group moved his chair eight inches to the right to get into the shade, and this set off a fight, which just went on and on and on. But the most famous part of these immaturity and childishness is in this photograph right here. And if you look very carefully above the door, you see that door that's in the sun. Above it, do you see a ladder below the window there? Do you see that ladder? It's just barely visible. There's a ladder going up to that window. That's called the immovable ladder. Now, no one knows who put the ladder there. Nobody has any idea, but sometime around 200 years ago, for whatever reason, someone put that ladder up there, and no one knows who did it, but anytime someone talks about moving it, the other groups get angry at each other, so now no one will move the ladder. It stays up there, and you say, how can people be that immature and that childish at the church of the Holy Sepulchre that they get wound up about a ladder, and they don't want to move a ladder? Have you ever been to a Baptist church? I was the pastor of Turner Memorial Baptist Church for eight years in North Carolina. And so when I came there, right outside the sanctuary was a hallway that connected the Sunday school wing with the worship uh, area. And it was a little hallway. And in this hallway was a table that was sagging in the middle. It was sagging because it was weighted down with old Sunday school quarterlies. Now, uh, these things were uh, antiquities there. I mean, if someone who had some sort of morbid interest in discovering the pedagogy of uh, Southern Baptist Sunday School literature over the years and doctrinal changes, they, they might have found this interesting. But it was just sagging, stacked up with all these old Sunday School quarterlies. And I asked someone, why do you have all this? Well, you never know. We might need them. We're not going to need them. So it looked junky. And so one one week I went in there and I cleaned them out and I threw them all away and I took the old junky table and I threw it away. The next Sunday people came to church, where's the table? Where's that table at? Where's the, who moved the table? Who moved the table? I moved the table. Well, who told you you could move the table? Common sense told me I could move the table because it's ugly and weighted down. 
Some of you have experienced situations where someone suggested that one Sunday school class, which was, oh, I'm sorry, we use life groups now. Uh, but anyway, so one, I, I'm still stuck on old terms. I'll be using them till the day I die. But anyway, oh, y'all didn't have to amen that. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Some of you getting too up. See, you're the people I'm talking about right now, okay? I'm just telling you. You got a ladder. You just put up a ladder, y'all, okay? You didn't like that. We like the nice Alan from 11 years ago. We don't, anyway, so, uh, so you just put up a ladder. Anyway, you made my point. So here's the, here's the whole thing. We get hung up on, we don't want to change. We don't do these things. And the church gets immature. And let me tell you, when a church turns inward, it turns ugly. Some of you, your experience of church has been petty stuff, just like the ladder over the door to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you've almost given up on church because you're tired of seeing petty, immature stuff. Well, I want to tell you, there can be glory in the church. Glory in the church. And what we want to discover is how is it that God comes down and a church is really what it should be and there is glory in the church and people are enthused. Listen, a local church should be the most encouraging, enthusiastic people in the community. And Wichita needs a local church in this area that loves Jesus Christ, is enthusiastic about the gospel, encouraging the lost people, lifts people up, not puts them down. How does that happen? We're going to talk about glory in the church. And... Let me show you five truths, if you will, about glory in the church. First, there is glory in the church when we fulfill God's purpose. Look at verses 1 through 7. Paul starts talking about ministering to the Gentiles. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and following, we talked all about how God was building Jews and Gentiles into one body. It's a great mystery. Well, Paul emphasizes this again. And he comes back and he drives this point home. And he's talking about how both Jews and Gentiles can be saved by grace. Look, and he's, this is all part of God's purpose for a church. God's purpose is for glory in the God's there's glory in the church when we fulfill God's purpose our main message is not political though there are certainly political ramifications for being a Christian and I hope Christians are involved in the political arena but our message is not primarily political I teach philosophy but our purpose is not primarily philosophical we're not here to teach people philosophy uh, there are economic in impacts of being a Christian but our main message is not economic there are certainly psychological benefits to being a Christian uh, free from anxiety free from fear and being stable and a person of strength and stability that can move forward but our message is not political our message is not philosophical our message is not economic our message is not psychological our message is theological and its purpose is to share the gospel of grace Look at verse 2 and notice what it says. Indeed, you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. And God gave Paul this message of grace as a steward. He's to take care of it. And we've been given this message of grace, God's unmerited favor for sinners. Regardless of where you are or your background in life and what baggage you brought into church, there's grace available to you. Our purpose is to share God's grace. God's purpose is a mystery revealed. Look at verse 3. Paul uses this word mystery. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery that I wrote before. When we use the word mystery in English, it sounds sinister and dark. We think of an Agatha Christie novel or a Sherlock Holmes story, someone trying to find the murderer or something like that. 
But really what it means here is mystery means a truth beyond human discovery which has been revealed by God. A truth beyond human discovery which has been revealed by God. And what is that truth beyond human discovery? It is that God's purpose is to create one body from different backgrounds. Look at verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles, now notice in verse 6, these word fellow or together just gets piled up. Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. These were things that were hinted at in the Old Testament. You remember the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, I'm blessing you that all people will be blessed. That's a hint that the gospel is not just for Jewish people, it's for for Gentiles. And things that were uh, dimly seen to us in the Old Testament are made more explicitly clear in the New Testament. And God's purpose is to make one body out of people from all these different backgrounds. Grounds. Have you ever seen a mosaic? Do you know what a mosaic is? Well, one way you can make a mosaic is to take broken pieces of glass and an artist with extreme sensitivity and care can take these broken pieces of glass from all these different colors and they look like a pile of junk sitting there on a table or in a workbench because they're just broken pieces of glass. But when an artist of who in his or her mind already has a picture of a beautiful mosaic. They begin to take those little pieces of glass of different colors and place one here and place one here and place one here. And when when that artist is done, these broken pieces of glass, which individually are worthless, when you put them together, they are of infinite value. What a picture of the church. God takes my brokenness. God takes your brokenness. God takes all the junk in my background and all the junk in your background and he covers it with the blood of Jesus and he takes all those broken people and he puts us together and he makes something beautiful out of it from all these different backgrounds somebody came from a wealthy family somebody came from a poor family somebody hangs sheetrock for a living somebody is a surgeon for a living somebody's a housewife somebody's retired God takes all these broken people and puts them together and it's beautiful glory in the church well there's glory in the church when God when we fulfill God's purpose there's glory in the church when we proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 8. Paul says, he, he has an outburst of amazement. Paul says, to me, the very least of all the saints, he says, I'm a nobody. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I want to look at that word preach for just a second. It is the word from which we get our word evangelism. It is really to evangelize. To preach to the Gentiles. The word preach is euangelizo, evangelize here. It means to proclaim good news. In literature outside the Bible, that word evangelize, euangelizo, proclaim good news, was in some cases referred to a message of victory in a war. So the people back at the city in the homeland are wondering how the war is going, and an evangelist would arrive with message of victory that our army had defeated another army. That's how the word was used in some cases in ancient literature outside the Bible. We've got a message of victory. A war has taken place. This, this world has been invaded by a power. It is the eternal son of God. He stepped out of eternity and into time and he lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death and he was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose victoriously over sin and hell and death in the grave. Hey, we got news of victory. 
Well, we've been to the battlefront already, and Jesus has conquered. Some of you have message of victory. You know what your life was like before Jesus Christ took over, and you can stand and give testimony today. You've been to the battlefront, and the victor has conquered, and Satan has been defeated in your life, and sin has been forgiven. You got a message of victory. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to proclaim the gospel, to preach the good news. I said, thank you for your support. I said we're to proclaim the gospel, the message of good news. Why do you want to be a part of a church unless it's evangelistic? Why would you want to be a part of a church unless you're trying to reach out to lost people? Because you see, if, if you're not reaching out to lost people and you're not an evangelistic church, this is what happens. You get worried about all sorts of things that don't matter. You say, Branch wore that suit four weeks ago. You say, that tie, I don't know. And you say, well, that song, we sang that three weeks ago. Well, look at there. That guy didn't speak to me this morning. When we get all of this stuff, when we're just kind of whining. But you see, if you get some lost people saved, and what happens is you and I have learned how to talk around church. We've learned Jesus talk. So I came to you this morning. Nobody this morning told me I've had a bad week. Everybody's saying, hallelujah, praise God. Jesus is awesome. I'm living for the Lord. Got the victory. Some of you just lying. I mean, because you've had defeat. But we've learned Jesus talk, right? We learn how to say the right things when we come to church. And some of you this morning, you got up and you were dragging kids to church. And the kids said, I don't want to go to church. We're going to church. I don't want to go. We are going to church. I don't want to go. We're going because we're not pagans like the people next door cutting their grass on Sunday morning. We're a Christian home. We're going to church. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And the wife's in the bathroom. And somebody, one of you men made a bad mistake. You, you honked the horn in the driveway this morning. Don't ever do that. No. And she's, and, well, you stayed up too late. Well, if you hadn't been up watching the NBA playoffs last night. Well, if you hadn't been watching reruns of Walker. Texas Ranger. And I did yeah, we're going to church. And they get in the van and the kids are in the back seat crying, I don't want to go to church. We are going to church. We're a Christian family. You run down the road. You got out of the van, walked across the parking lot. You saw me. Hallelujah, Brother Allen. Praise God. Amen. I'm glad to be at church this morning. You need some lost people, some baby Christians who haven't learned all that lingo in church. You know why? They have a morning like that. You meet them in the parking lot, they go say, I just got saved. What does the Bible say about divorce? I want to know right now. Right? So I want to know. You got a whole different set of issues to deal with. Makes church fun when lost people get saved because they got baggage. And you get to deal with that baggage. And suddenly you're not worried about petty stuff. You're worried about the gospel, preaching the gospel. But notice what he says. Something interesting. Can I show you something in this passage? It's fascinating. Look at verse 10, would you? He says, interesting. He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known through the church. And notice to who we're to make it known to. To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What does that mean? The rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What does Paul mean there? He tells us what he means in chapter 6. Would you look at this, if you would, in verse 12 of chapter 6? And we understand who he says about these rulers and authorities. Verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. The background when Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says the church is proclaiming the gospel to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. 
He's not, when he says rulers and authorities, he's not talking about kings and rulers here on earth. He's not talking about angels. In context of the book of Ephesians, what he has in mind is Satan and his demons. When we proclaim the gospel, when we preach the gospel, we're putting hell on notice. Jesus is alive. When we proclaim the gospel, we're letting Satan know you're not the final victor in this battle. When we proclaim the gospel, we're putting Satan and the demons of hell on notice. Hey, this person to whom we're sharing the gospel, right now, Satan, you got him. Right now, she's yours. Right now, their life is a mess. We're putting you on notice. Jesus is about to invade. We're putting you on notice. There's power in the blood of Jesus Christ and this life may look wrecked and it may look ruined but there's glory in the church and we're telling listen we need to put the devil on notice here in Wichita some church needs to get out in the streets and say listen Jesus saves needs to go into homes where homes and wives are thinking about divorce and say Jesus saves to little boys and girls who are afraid of an alcoholic daddy let them know Jesus saves to families that are about to ruin it all and put the devil on notice Jesus saves Jesus saves the last word's not been written Oh, my goodness. There's glory in the church putting hell on notice that Jesus is around and he's moving. My word, I'm about to preach. Somebody said, I didn't know seminary professors preach like that. They do when they've been born again. Number three, there's glory in the church when Christ is present in our hearts. Notice what he says. Verses 14 through 19, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And then look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend all with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Just to give you a quick word there, that word saints doesn't mean a special class of people. All people who've been saved are, are saints. If you've been saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You're holy. You're a saint. So he says that there's glory when Christ dwells in our hearts. The heart doesn't represent that muscle that beats in our chest so many times a minute. It represents our spirit, our mind, our intellect, the seat of our will. And every one of us has a throne in our heart, and someone is sitting on that throne. Either Jesus is on that throne, or we are on that throne. You got the picture? Either Jesus rules our life, or we rule our life. It's too easy. And so, points two and three are closely tied together. The church is composed of people who have been converted Many churches struggle because of an unconverted membership. They have an unconverted people in their, their church roles. When Christ is in your heart, you are rooted and grounded in love. That word is agape. It is a love which seeks the highest good for someone else. Remember in chapter 1 verse 4 it said that in love he predestined us. So God has predestined us in love. Verse 17, we're rooted and grounded in love once we are saved. Once Jesus Christ dwells in our heart. And a church should be somewhat like an oasis. You know what an oasis is. You go through a desert and there's no water and you're struggling. And, and where do you get thirst uh, quenched from all the desert heat? And then there's an oasis there, these springs that spring up in the desert. This church should be an oasis of love in the city of Wichita for thirsty people. 
where Christians who have Christ dwelling in their heart, Jesus is in your heart. Listen very carefully. There's glory in the church in a converted membership. And if you joined a church, but you never asked Jesus into your heart, the number one issue for you today is to give your life to Jesus Christ because church membership doesn't save you. Jesus saves. It's Christ in your heart that saves. How are we going to do this? What's it going to look like? How, how can we do these things? Let me give you five ideas that I think we need to focus on to reach this city for Christ. First, how are we going to do it that people with Jesus living in their heart proclaiming the gospel? How will we do it? Here's at least five things. First, a worship celebration and biblical preaching. That when people come to a worship service here at this church, it's going to be enthusiastic and upbeat. And they're going to hear the Bible preach. And they're going to hear music that praises Jesus. Now, I hear a lot of fussing about worship wars. I'm going to say something about worship wars right now. I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. I love Southern gospel. I grew up listening to the, the uh, what do they call that, the gospel singing jubilee every su- Sunday morning before I went to church. I know the Florida boys, and I know the uh, inspirations. And In fact, I, uh, I have a playlist of gospel songs I listen to before I preach on Sunday morning to get me fired up. I want you to listen to me, though, church. Some of you, if I asked you right now for your grandchild, for your child to know Christ, for them to know Jesus, would you take a bullet? If that what it meant, would you lay down your life so that your child or your grandchild would know Christ? I've talked to some of you. you yes, I would. If it took me dying for my child or my grandchild to know Jesus, I'd do it. And I believe you. You better hold on. You're telling me that you would die for your child or your grandchild to know Jesus, but you don't want to change music? You're telling me you'd take a bullet for them to know Jesus, but you don't want to change music? Listen, the issue about music is not the beat or whether they got a guitar or where Donnie's just tearing out an awesome lead, which would be kind of cool in my opinion. But I mean, so... uh, uh, The issue is, what's the doctrine? Because I can take you to some Southern Gospel songs that are doctrinal junk right now. And I can take you to some contemporary songs there, the doctrine is junk. The issue is, do they lift up Jesus? Do they lift up the cross, the empty tomb? And if it's good doctrine, it's okay. And so we're going to have a worship service that celebrates Jesus and the music's going to be upbeat. And when people leave, I want them to have joy in their heart. And I can promise you this. If you bring your friends to this church, they're going to hear the Bible preached. They're going to hear the cross and they're going to hear hope in the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to have a worship celebration. We're going to have a children's ministry that strives, is committed to excellence. Parents want to know that their children have the very, very best. We want to have a children's ministry that's committed to excellence, which parents embrace, and they know their children are being taught the Bible and how Jesus loves them, how they can pray and find strength in hard times in life. We're going to have personal gospel conversations and intentional follow-up. If somebody visits our church, we're going to make every effort to follow up with them. And people from every ethnic group, remember, we, we don't want just to be like everybody else we know we want to reach out to everyone in Wichita wherever they're from whether they're African American or Hispanic or Vietnamese or Korean or if they're even from Alabama we don't care where they're from we want all of them to know Jesus my family's from Alabama number four become the most welcoming friendly church in Wichita we got a problem right now I'm gonna tell you what the problem is something I'm working on if you're a visitor and you come to this church you don't know where to go in 
You don't know where to go in. Now, all you know, because you've been here, right? Or some of you smart. See, this is why only intelligent people have, can come here. Because you have to be smart enough to have to know which door to go in, right? But it's, uh, but, so we're going to become the most friendly church. I need your help. We ought, when people come to this church, they ought to not just have one or two people. They ought to have a string of smiling people welcoming them when they come through the door. When a mother comes in, she's a single mom and kids, and she doesn't know where to go, that somebody's going to take her back to the children's center, not just going to say, well, walk down there and turn down that aisle, and just go to hear a bunch of screaming, and that's the place. No, don't do that. Uh, we want to help. See what I'm saying? We want to be the most friendly, welcoming church in Wichita, where people come here and they say, my goodness, uh, what a friendly group of people. Now, can you say amen to that? A friendly group of people where we, that we're welcoming, encouraging. And then five, structured preparation for membership and baptism. Brother Ryan's teaching the new member seminar on Sunday, May 20th. Some of you need to be there. Where we, uh, there's people working with our children, preparing them for baptism after they trusted Christ. Where they, we want to make sure there's structured preparation for membership and baptism. I can't stress to you, if you want to know what I'm thinking, it's five things right now. A worship celebration and biblical preaching. A children's ministry, which is awesome. A personal gospel conversations and follow-up. Becoming the most welcoming and friendly church in Wichita. And a structured preparation for both baptism and church membership. Now, let's move back to the text. There is glory in the church when God's power is at work in us. Look at verses 20 through 21. Notice what it says. Now to him who is able to do far more. Look at all these words for power. Now him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us. That phrase far more abundantly. It's powerful in Greek. It, it jumps off the page. This overwhelming power. It's, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. Uh, one person said it this way. In other words, Christ's ability far surpasses not only what we verbalize in prayer, but also beyond our wildest imagination. The syntax here is impressive. The idea is excelling, surpassing, above, beyond, more than. Listen, God, uh, God can do more than you and I can even imagine in our prayers. Even than we can dream of, God's able to do far more. God can use you and make a mark in this world that lasts. You can make a mark that lasts. Your life can mean something of substance and importance in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's glory in the church when God's power is at work within us. 1999, excuse me, 2000. I, I had an old Chevrolet pickup truck, an 81 Silverado, had a six-cylinder three-speed on the column. Do any of you remember the three-speed on the column? This is the, I don't know what engineer came up with that. That's the worst transmission ever. So I, the engine was wore out, transmission was wore out, and I saved up my money, and I bought a crate motor 350 Chevrolet. And somebody gave me old turbo 400 transmission I had reworked, and my buddy Jim Booth and I took the old six-cylinder three-speed straight transmission out of this rusted-out truck and replaced it with a brand-new V8 and a brand-new Turbo 400. Now, I don't know if there are any police officers in the service this morning because I'm about to confess to some things, but uh, to put it most gently, the performance of the vehicle changed dramatically. Now, on the outside, it was still a rusted-out Chevrolet truck, but it performed differently. Why is that? Because it had a new power plant. Something like that happens when you're saved. What does the Bible say? God takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh when you're saved. And people say, well, there comes old Branch again walking down the street. He looks just like he did yesterday. But they don't know the transformation that's take, taking place. They don't understand the dramatic power that is now at work in your life. And when, when that power is at work in your life, sooner or later it comes out on the outside and people begin to say, you know, I don't know what's happened to him. I don't know what's happened to her. But something has dramatically 
radically changed. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work within us. There is glory in the church when people change by the gospel above and beyond and surpassing anything that we might imagine Jesus Christ does in their life. And there is glory in the church when we lift up the person of Jesus Christ. I want to go back to a verse that I touched on, verse 8. Paul says again, I'll read it again. To me, the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, here it is, the unfathomable riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. It is a vivid term describing how immeasurable the riches in Christ are. The word means being impossible to understand on the basis of careful examination and investigation. It is a word that's just rich with meaning. Let me tell you about that word, these unsearchable riches. It's uh, unfathomable riches. Let me explain that word unfathomable. In Greek, the word comes from the root for foot. And here's what it meant. Back in the day, someone who was a tracker, uh, someone who would go out and track people would track footprints, right? Track footprints. And the word there has that root. It it's means to trace someone or to track someone. And so you would have a tracker trying to find uh, an enemy or an outlaw or something back in the day. And he's tracing footprints and he's looking at footprints. That's the root of the word, but it has a negation in front of it. And what it means is it can't be traced. You, you can't discover it. You can't find it. There's no bottom to it. There are unsearchable riches in Christ. You can't find the bottom of the riches. I enjoy hiking out in the Rocky Mountains. And one of the things you discover if you go through the Intermountain West enough is there's lots of abandoned gold mines. You know why? They discovered a vein of gold and they dug and they dug and they dug. And what happened? That vein of gold ran out. It played out right? So they abandoned the mine because they reached an end to the riches in that mind. Listen, in the person of Jesus Christ, no matter how deep you go, no matter how much you mine, no matter how much you learn, you never reach the bottom. It never plays out. Unsearchable riches in Christ. His mercy never plays out. The sin that you've forgiven, the sin that he's forgiven in your life, his forgiveness never plays out. It's unsearchable. They are, you can't find the bottom of his mercy. You can't find the the bottom of his grace. You can't find the bottom of his love. It's indescribable. It's like Paul is running out of words. He says, there's no way you can trace this out. There's no way you can find the bottom of it. It's unsearchable riches in Christ. You realize what we have, what a treasure we have as a church? What is Wichita looking for? People driving up and down the road looking for more money. People jumping in and out of clubs looking for somebody to love them. People running hither and thither and they're, they're trying to find purpose and meaning in life and death is coming and hell is moving and we have the unsearchable riches in Christ. Uh, sometimes I get a little frustrated with churches. I preached in a lot of churches and sometimes when I think about the depth of the gospel, unsearchable riches in Christ. You can't find the bottom of them. All, the different translations translate that this way. Incalculable, infinite, endless, unfathomable, unsearchable, boundless. That no one can find the right word. There's just no bottom to it. See, for everything that we have, we have a scale to measure it. We have the Fujita scale for tornadoes, F1 to F5. Hope we don't have one, right? We have these scales for hurricanes. We grade them category one to category five. We have, someone even says, uh, a, it's called a Scoville scale to measure the pungency of peppers. Who knew there was such a thing? There's the Richter scale, at least modern forms of it, for earthquakes. We have scales for all sorts of things in uh, 
physical parts of the world, we even have things, psychological tests, the MMPI, to tell us where we're at psychologically. Then we have the Myers-Briggs type indicator test. You ever had somebody force you to do one of those and some job interview, and then they want to know which, how you wind up on the Myers-Briggs type indicator test? If you've never had to do this, you are a blessed person. God loves you. But uh, they, are, they are a pain. And so I've been forced to do the MMPI on two different occasions in my life against my will. And the way the MMPI comes out, you come out as an ISTJ or an ISFP, all these numbers, letters, and stand for everything. And it's kind of irritating me to get around people that really get into the Myers-Briggs because they come up to me and ask questions. I am an ISBFJ. What are you? And my answer is, I came out of B-U-B-B-A. That's what I came out, right? That was my score. I'm a Bubba. Uh, so... We have, we have measurements for everything, psychologically, meteorologically. But there's no way to measure the love of Christ and the grace of Christ. It's unsearchable. Why is that? Because he's eternal. What did God say to Moses? My name is what? I am that I he just exists. He's eternal. And because he's eternal, his grace is eternal. Because he is eternal, his mercy is eternal. Because he's eternal, his love is eternal. Unsearchable. You'll never find the end of this infinite love of Christ. And listen to what that means for you today. No matter how deep your sin, God's grace goes a whole lot deeper. No matter how deep your brokenness, the love of God goes so much deeper. No matter what someone's told you about your life, a parent that was critical and ugly and kind and uncruel, and you've carried that for years. Listen, God's grace goes deeper. A spouse that left you alone, and you meant to love them with all your heart, and they've broken your heart and your life. feels like it just came to an end. God's grace goes deeper. I'm telling you, whatever your brokenness, whatever the pain, whatever the addiction, the grace of Jesus Christ, unsearchable riches, it goes deeper. There's glory in the church because sometimes I feel like we've got these unsearchable riches and I get around church and I feel like I'm dealing with people sometimes that are playing, uh, they're using diamonds to play marbles, taking diamonds to play marbles. And we've got the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a message. There's glory in the church when we lift up the person of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about Jesus. We don't want to create a cult of personality. We want to talk about Jesus. We want Jesus to be lifted up and Jesus to be glorified. I mentioned this hymn, Amazing Grace, a few weeks back. Many of you know the last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. What you may not know is that John Newton did not write that verse. That verse was not originally part of Amazing Grace. We're not sure where it came from, but the best guess is that last verse of Amazing Grace was added by African slaves here in America. They embraced the song when they heard it, the grace of Jesus Christ. And here they are in unspeakable misery. misery. They are uh, just chattel being bought and sold at the whims of someone else. They're a slave. But in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they found hope. And in that, these unsearchable riches of Christ, you see what they're singing about? They added that last verse. 
when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. What rich theology. You realize what they grabbed hold of? That in Christ, there are unsearchable riches. He's eternal. It goes on forever. This world is not my home. I have a home on high that's been purchased by him. Amazing grace, the riches in Christ. And there's glory in the church when we lift up the person of Jesus Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask Lisa to come, Brother Denny to come. We're going to have our invitation. I want to talk to two groups of people. First of all, you're a Christian, and you know you've been saved. Um, You've been um, born again, and you could tell me the day and time. But maybe you've been like those folks I described playing marbles with diamonds when it comes to the gospel. And today God's spoken to your heart. And you want to be a part of a church that is dynamic, reaching people for Christ, winning the lost. And one of these different areas of service, you've been sitting on the sidelines and it's just time to get in the game. Maybe this is the church God's led you to. Brother Ryan's going to have that new member seminar on the 20th. You know you need to be there because God's already led you here. So if that's where you're at in your life, I'm inviting you to come forward. Let's pray together. Maybe you're here and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And when we talked about brokenness and the pain and the heartache of life, you said, man, I got a load of it. Let me tell you, the riches of Christ are for you. You can be saved. Why not come forward and Take my hand. Brother Andy is here, and we can pray with you. And and Nikki's here, and she can pray with you. And you can know how you can be saved, and you can be forgiven. We're going to take time. No one's going to rush you. But why not trust Christ today? I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to sing. And while they're singing, if you have a decision to make, you come. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for men and women and boys and girls to believe on Jesus today. And I pray there'd be glory in this church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, dear God, your glory would reign in our lives, that people would see Jesus in us. And if there's someone here who's never been saved, they do not have Jesus in their heart. I pray that today they would. I pray they'd get off the throne and let Jesus reign in their life. And I pray for Christians that you've already led here to this church. They know this is where they're supposed to be, God. I pray they would join us as we try to reach the city for Christ. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet as we sing one of my favorite hymns, Trust and Obey.